0: things started here I just want to ask because I'm curious does anybody happen to have memorized the eighth step and in, in AA's 12-step healing process is there anybody here that's gone through AA or am I the only one okay do you remember step eight yeah I don't either <laughs> so uh I was gonna look at oh Oh, I'm going to give it right back to you in just a second. Yeah, Paige is on call today. So I want you to to listen to these words. This is step eight. And once you hear this, you'll understand why most people that go through AA never get beyond the third or the fourth step. They never even get to this level. And if they do, they drop out. Step eight says this, to make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Doesn't that sound like fun? Keep that in mind. We'll revisit it later. Thank you, cuteness. <laughs> Honey. <laughs> I sense jealousy in the room. All right. So over, over the last, this is our sixth week in this study, and we've talked about all these different aspects of ways that we can get to have more of God in our lives and less of ourselves. This little measuring stick based on John 3.30 says, I must be least that he may be greatest, right? So we talked about that power shift in our lives. And then from there, we talked about seeking more power in our spiritual lives. More power. That means when we pray for things, it actually happens. We're not wishy-washy like a double-minded man or a boat with no, no udder. We are focused and with power of prayer, we can make things happen, right? And then we went to talking about the Holy Spirit and and, and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to, to lead our prayer life, to lead our paths that we walk, to do ministry through us and, and the effectiveness of that. And then we went and we talked about faith, having more faith in our lives, faith that will send us to places we've never been, doing things we've never accomplished. So faith is extremely important to those who call themselves believers. I'm going to move this one down here because this is our focus today. And then last week we talked about having more knowledge based on Psalm 119, 105, where it says, thy, lamp is a, a light is a, a, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Okay? So we remember that, right? So all of these things are extremely important. Today we're going to be talking about more forgiveness, more forgiveness. Now I'm curious... Most of us who are Christian, we know what it feels like to be forgiven. That's what coming to faith in Christ Jesus means. That's why we remember communion and the blood that was shed for us and the body that was broken for us. And so, through that, his redemptive work on the cross, we have forgiveness. But how many of you have ever been in a place where you have thought to yourself, I need more forgiveness? More forgiveness. Now, people like me, I sin almost every day. All right, I sin every day, uh, in one shape, in one way or another. I probably sin every single day. I'm not always cognizant of them, but I know that they're probably there. Uh, who knows? I'm not even going to try to speculate as to how many I have a day. But the fact is that there's there's sin there all the time. So almost every time when I come to the Lord in prayer, do my devotional time, my my Bible reading, my my spiritual development, it always has to contain an element of repentance and confession. In other words, every time I pray, I'm having to ask for more forgiveness because I continue to mess things up. Now, I know you all don't have that problem, but I do, and I'm just trying to keep it real. But the other interesting thing about it, and I don't know if you knew this, but there's actually different levels of sin. There's different quantitative aspects of sinfulness. First, we know the word sin, which means to miss the mark. It's the Greek word amartia, uh, which means just basically it's a, a verbal, or it's a word picture of you shooting an arrow at a target and missing the target completely. And you miss the mark. That's what sin is. That's what we usually talk about. That's what we relate to. But there's also another word, transgressions. Now understand that every transgression is sin. All right? But transgression is a different type of sin. Transgression in the Hebrew means a rebellion or a rebellious act. It basically implies that you know it's wrong. You know what the Bible says about it. You know it's going to hurt God and maybe hurt others, but yet in your rebelliousness, you do it anyway. Because for we're crying out loud, nobody's going to tell me what to do, right? Nobody's going to stifle my actions. I can do whatever I want, and you're not going to make me feel guilty about it either. So that's transgression. And then there's the third word, iniquity. This is where it gets really interesting. Iniquity is basically sin at its worst. Iniquity is, uh, in the Hebrew, is implied to be premeditated sin, a continual sin. That's where we put in our addictions, alcoholism, drug use, abuse, abuse of our spouses or abuse of children, that kind of thing. Uh, negligence in doing the things God tells us to do. Uh, addiction of, of uh, playing entirely too much PlayStation or, or, or Overwatch. Or, or too much golf, or too much boating, or too much NFL, or too much Major League Baseball. All those things can be addictions, and they can be in this category of iniquity. But this is where it gets the most interesting. With iniquity, there is the the, the, the capacity to harden your heart. Because iniquity means that that this is a sin that I embrace... I enjoy it, and and, and even though it may not be real bad, it's not like I killed anybody, right? It's sin that I just don't care about. I don't care if it's sin. I'm going to do it anyway. And and so whenever whenever you commit a sin of this type, you basically refuse to repent. You don't have any need to confess it because... It's not that bad. And so I'm going to do it anyway, regardless what the church thinks, regardless what the pastor thinks, regardless what the Bible thinks, regardless what God thinks. I'm going to do it anyway. And when you start doing that, you start to have a developing callousness in your heart. And when you allow that callousness to continue, your heart becomes more and more hardened to the point where God can no longer penetrate your heart. And that's where you don't want to be. You don't want to be so full of yourself and so hard that nobody can correct you, that nobody can say anything to you, that nobody can, can encourage you because you'd probably just want to fight them anyway. Now, when we go to Isaiah 53, this is a passage that we need to know if we're not uh, aware of it already. This is important stuff to our, our Christianity. To our salvation. And all of these things are going to be included in this passage. And so I want to spend some time just looking at some of these verses because we need to understand what's going on here. Now, my Bible says that this chapter is considered a lament of Israel. It's basically a passage where uh, this is imposed upon the Israel people who have rejected Christ, who did not see. Uh, him as being the son of God and as a result refused to follow him and as a result of that they hardened their hearts towards Jesus. Now what's interesting is this is Isaiah in, in about the year 712 BC, about 700 years before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah predicted that the people of Israel would lament this type of prayer. Because they have allowed themselves to become hardened and as a result missed Christ completely. So look at the beginning here. It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot. From a child he grew up among us. He never departed. He didn't come from the outside in. He was one of us. He came up from within as a little child and like a root out of dry ground. This is where it gets interesting. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now, this is just a little soapbox for you. I've read all these stories in the Bible countless times. And every time we see pictures of Jesus, isn't he a good-looking guy? I mean, he's attractive. You watch The Passion, and you're like, Jim Caviezel? Yeah, he's a good-looking guy. I could see him playing Jesus. I couldn't. I'm not attractive. Sorry, honey, I know you think I am. Yeah. But, but why is it that all the pictures of Jesus show him being handsome? All the movies have his handsome character playing Jesus. It says right here, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing about his appearance that we should even desire him. Now think about this for a minute. Um, what was I going to say? Samson. Samson was the one with all the strength, right? And he had the relationship with Delilah, who kept going to the Philistines and telling his his secrets, right? Because he kept playing with her. We, we see pictures of Samson. We see Samson in movies, and when we think of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, with these huge muscles and such. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Samson had big muscles. In fact, when he approached the Philistines, they couldn't tell what was the source of his strength. They had to say to Delilah, would you find out where he's getting the strength? Because we don't know where it's coming from. He was a normal looking guy. He was scrawny. It was the power in his hair, which is Nazarite vows, and the power of God that was in him that was the source of his strength. We miss that. David, we, we know that he was a good-looking guy, uh, but we also know that when he became king, he was a, a ruddy character, and he was not a big of stature. He was the youngest in his tribe, bless you. David was the youngest, probably the smallest. He was a wrestler-type guy, but he certainly, he was a musician and he took care of the sheep. Why would anybody make him into a king? Because that's what God does. He takes the lowly of the world, puts his power into them, and says, now go and do what I've called you to do. That's what we talked about last week when we looked at 1 Corinthians. This is what God likes to do. The foolishness of the cross to those who are perishing, but to those of us who believe it's the power of God. This is what God always does. Jesus was not a a person, I don't believe personally, that was extremely good looking and just attracted lots of people saying, I want to hang out with him. He is so good looking. No, it was the spirit of God in him that attracted people. It was his connection to the Holy Father, his discipline, scripturally speaking and spiritually speaking, that attracted so many people. Think about it. He went up to a bunch of gnarly disciples fisherman and he said come follow me and they dropped what they were doing as if they were hypnotized there was something in him that was magnetizing people to come to him and they couldn't get enough of him but it was not because he was so good looking by the way that should give hope to all of you I'm just kidding I just had to throw that out there just trying to keep it real but this is what Israel was saying and would be saying in regards to this Messiah. We didn't see anything special in this man. And so we missed him. We overlooked him, which is exactly what would happen today. It says in verse three, he was despised and he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not despised and rejected, this was the Messiah. Of course, Israel wasn't going to follow him and and praise his name because he was despised and rejected. It says in verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He took our infirmities, another fancy word for sin. He took it all upon himself. He carried our sorrows, making himself ugly because of our ugliness that we imposed upon him. And he looked even uglier. And the world looked at him and said, what kind of Messiah would do this? What kind of person would, would grovel like this and lower himself like this?" this? There's no way this could be a son of God. And it goes on to say that he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The word pierced in the, in the Hebrew means to perforate, to bore, or to pierce for my transgressions and yours remember these are the addictive sins these are the rebellious sins that we do the hateful stuff we do the mean stuff we do he he took this upon himself and as a result was perforated in his body for this he was pierced with this and then in in the word uh and under iniquity he was crushed Crushed in the Hebrew means to be oppressed or to be pushed down. And he was certainly pushed down and brutally treated because of our iniquities and for our forgiveness. It's just crazy stuff. And I don't know if, you, if you've just forgotten all of this since the day you came to faith, the day you were baptized. I don't know if you, th- you ponder these things, but... You know, when you're in a a responsibility like mine, you, you have to. You have to revisit it frequently, and you just have to ask those questions. Why would he do this for me? Why would he do this? It says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Our capacity to be healed is even connected to his death on the cross. So when I take communion, I say thank you for the body that was broken for me and thank you the blood that was shed for me. The blood is what cleanses my sin. The brokenness of the body is what gives me my healing. And I need it on a regular basis. He goes down to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he never opened his mouth. He was, like a, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. He never opened his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? There are none. He was cut off from the land of the living, and for my transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave. Though he had not done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. And verse 10 is probably one of the most troubling verses you'll read. But it's also very significant. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. God the Father, this was his will. Son, I want you to go and I want you to lay down your life for all of these people who have ever lived, who are living now, who will ever live. I want you to go and to lay down your life for them, taking their sins upon yourself. To which he did this willingly. So there's the three sins. Now we know that all iniquity is sin. All transgression is sin. This is all sin under the huge umbrella of sin. But there's different types of of sin. I want you to go, if you would, to Psalm 32 and look at this verse for just a moment. It says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is in, there is no deceit. And in verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity, which means he repented. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave the guilt of my sin. What separates sinfulness from iniquity is repentance and confession. That's why I think it is so vital to every believer to maintain an attitude of humility, a spirit of humility. Because in your humility is where confession and repentance are birthed. And if you're filled with arrogance and conceitedness and and, uh, narcissism, then you're going to miss the whole boat here. You're going to miss the whole program. You're never going to, to develop beyond just that point of salvation. You'll just never get there. And so if if we're going to maintain an aspect of humility, which I try to do in my life, but I again, I struggle with pride, so go figure. But but still, that's the goal, is to maintain a culture of humility, because then out of that culture of humility will become a culture of repentance and confession. The hard-hearted don't become hard-hearted because of their humility. It's because of their arrogance, because of their pride that they get to that position. Now, you might do a little litmus test for yourself and find out, well, am I prideful, am I arrogant, or am I humble? Well, let me ask you this. If somebody were to say to you, I really hate to mention this, but I think that what you just did was kind of mean. If you get defensive, arrogance, pride. If you humbly say, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I am so sorry for what I did. I am so sorry for how I behaved. You might be okay. Or somebody comes to you and says, "Um, should you be drinking all those drinks? Should you be smoking that stuff? If you get defensive, then maybe you're full of pride. But if you humbly say, you're right, I screwed up. Then maybe you're in the right place. When we fail or refuse to repent of our sin, we become calloused to that particular sin. Over time, we may even begin to embrace that particular sin, claiming that there is nothing wrong with that particular sin, or separating ourselves from those who disagree with us because we want to protect that sinful behavior because that's an expression of my personality, my free will. But they may also go so far as to start hating the one who opposes you. Does that happen today? Can you think of anybody who hates the church because of our position on this or that? Absolutely. They run us through the mud. They talk about us on every TV show known to man, and they keep kicking us. They just keep kicking us, illustrating how stupid we are to believe the Scriptures, how stupid we are and how how uh, just ridiculous we are that we're so contrary to the world and the ways of the world. There's a couple of the verses I want to share with you. Matthew eleven twenty. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. So he went to them, performed incredible miracles in their presence, but even then they didn't repent And because of their hard-heartedness, he rebuked them and he departed. In Matthew 21, 32, for John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and you did not believe in him. Can you imagine? And this was the same church people who criticized Jesus because he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. I can almost hear him saying, well, they're the only ones listening to me, church. But the Pharisees hated it. You've got to quit. You're going to defile yourself. Stay away from these evil people. Those are the ones Jesus came to die for. Page 2. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, now remember, Revelation is pertaining to the last days, the apocalypse, the coming of Christ, His return. It says in chapter 9, this is following also the the plagues that had come upon the world to get their attention and cause them to repent. Now listen to this, in the midst of these plagues, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands, the hands of the plagues. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. In the midst of all these plagues that were meant to turn their hearts back to God, they still did not repent. Crazy how hard a person's heart can get. And then I want to get to this one. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want you to highlight this and read it on your own because you won't believe me if you just listen to it. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what we may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. What he's saying here is that God has revealed himself to every human being in this world. He has shown himself to them through creation, through the work of his Holy Spirit. He has created them in his image. So there is no way anyone can say there is no God. God does not exist because he has made it plainly known To everyone, there is a God and he is it. But what happens is when you don't want to believe that, you suppress the truth. You just convince yourself God isn't real. God doesn't exist. There is no God. And so I can do whatever I want in my world. And in your suppressing of the truth, you become more and more hardened to the things of this world. He goes on to say, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been understood from what has been made. Through creation, they have come to know there is a God. Okay? So that men are without excuse. So I hear this all the time. What is God going to do about all those people who've never heard the gospel? He's still going to judge them accordingly because he's revealed himself to them. He is a just God. He is 100% accurate in his judgment. If anybody ends up going to hell, it's going to be because they have rejected him because he's made himself plainly known to them. Plainly known to them. Everyone in their heart knows there's a God, but not everybody embraces it. He goes on to say, for although they knew God... Remember how we talked about with knowledge, to know God means intimacy. It means I've studied him, I know him. These are people who know the name of God, but have never pursued his heart. Did I just lose power? No, I guess I can still hear. It sounded like it went down. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their futile thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts were darkened. Now, understand, this is a process. They suppressed the truth on an ongoing basis. They never glorified him. Every Thanksgiving, they would sit at the table and eat their turkey and dressing, watch football, never gave him thanks. And and they started patting themselves on the back because of their ability to provide for their families instead of thanking God for the ability to work in the first place. No thanksgiving in their hearts. No recognition of who God is or what he has accomplished. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is a process of becoming a fool. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore... God gave them over in their sinful desires, the desires of their hearts. So what does any of this have to do with more of you, more of God? One, I think that we always need to be cognizant of how deeply our sins affect us individually. But also how deeply they affect other people. We'll get to that in a second. God wants us to create an environment, an atmosphere, a culture of grace and forgiveness and humility. Because that is the environment by which people come in off the streets And they change. They see something in us that's different from the world and they want it for themselves. They want to have what we have. And it's not because of our attractiveness. It's not because we have a great building. It's because of what God is doing inside of us, magnetizing us so that people will be attracted to us. That's what we have to maintain. But there's more to it. There's a selfish motive. We need to folk, we need to shift. We need to pivot from looking at Isaiah 53 and how it pertains to us to shifting to the church and the environment in which we live, taking the same principles and positions and understandings, and now applying it instead of upon us and God, applying it to those of us around us in the seats today. We have to take this understanding of God's forgiveness of all of the things we've done and now impose it onto everyone else around us. I hear sometimes, well, we can't forgive that person. Look what they've done. Oh, okay. Well, I guess God doesn't have to forgive you then either, does he? Matthew 6.15 says, if you do not forgive others their sins, then your father will not forgive your sins. Last week, I was having some tests done and... And uh, the young lady that was uh, doing my ultrasound, uh, she once I told her I was a pastor, she just started talking. You know, that happens sometimes. Again, that's that magnetism that God does in us. I hope you understand that. Once you start letting his light shine through, people are going to come to you also to warm their hands. And so she said, well, I'm divorced, and um, and I've got a, tr- a crazy story. She's been dating somebody new, but she's... She, pushes them back, doesn't want them to get too close. Uh, she's got three beautiful kids, all under the age of six. No, I'm sorry, ten. Ten, six, and three. And the two girls have been violated by their father on an ongoing basis. But because of the laws and the, and the divorce decree, he still has access to these children every other week. She struggles with that. And, and, and listening to her and kind of trying to counsel and trying to encourage her and, and giving her some verses to contemplate, I finally said to her, I said, I know that right now forgiveness is not on your lips. And she said, and it never will be. Now she told me she is a Christian and she is going to church, but it will never be on my lips. That's how a lot of us are. We think that what people have done to us is a lot worse than what we've ever done to Jesus. What what they've done to us is worse than what we've done to God. But haven't we done the same things to God? Haven't we hurt him equally as much? I believe in the church, we need to create an environment of humility in all situations, be humble, recognizing that we're not always right. We don't always know the best way and the best answer and the best response. And out of our humility, just lower yourself, quit thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, and just humble yourself and accept everyone as they are with humility in your heart. And they will probably want to be in your presence. With that humility, we have to practice forgiveness as Jesus has taught us. We have to practice it. We have to go to meetings and say, Look, I know that you're ticking me off right now, but I love you anyway. And I'm not going to let the devil get the best of me. I'm not going to go home and lose sleep tonight just because you said some hateful things to me. Or because you did something hateful to me. Because you're my brother and my sister in Christ, and I love you anyway. And besides, maybe my way's not the best way. In that humility and in that spirit of forgiveness, we just blanket everybody. Addiction, forgiven. Abuse, forgiven. Bad language, forgiven. Bad breath, forgiven. <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm going to forgive, forgive, forgive because at the end of the day, I want you to forgive, forgive, forgive me. And when I talked about the eighth step of AA, this is something that's been ongoing, but sometimes you lose track. And then the Lord reminds you, by the way, you have some work to do. And so last week, the Lord woke me up at 3 a.m. Sorry, Doug, but he wakes me up at 3. (laughs) Um, He talks to you during the day. That's better. But he reminded me that there's people that I've sinned against, people that I've hurt, that I need to go back and get restitution for. Not... An easy task, especially when God gives you names and addresses of particular people and says, start with this one. And so I sent some emails and some instant messages to some, got quick responses. Not all of them went well. One in particular um, responded with grace at first. And then called me back a couple days later and said, "Um, I still forgive you, but basically, I don't want anything else to do with you. That happens. But in that case, you know, I go back to the Lord and I said, Lord, you told me to do this and it didn't go right. And the Lord said, maybe it went exactly as planned. I asked you to be obedient to me not successful. I asked you to follow my ways. Let the dust settle where it settles. But I asked you to do this, and you did what I asked you to do. Sometimes we're going to have to repent of people in these seats, and it's going to be something hard that we're going to have to do, but we have to do it anyway. We can't be cowards. 2 Timothy said, I didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power. So, so quit trying to avoid all this stuff and just go and be honest and be humble. Create an atmosphere that's conducive for people to find grace and forgiveness. And maybe then the church will become the church God called us to be. Now, every time I say stuff like that, I know it offends people. It always offends people. And maybe that's because of hard-heartedness. I don't know. But usually it offends people, and they'll come and they'll say, Our church is good. We're a good church. We're a nice church. We're a friendly church. And I always respond if we were a godly church, we would have to tear down the walls. We would have to turn people away if we were doing it right. But we're not. So there is room for change. We have to repent. We have to humble ourselves. Now, what does all this have to do with each other is this. In order to forgive people of this magnitude, you're going to need a whole lot of Holy Spirit working in you. Because this is not your nature to do this stuff. You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to do things that you just are too weak to accomplish by your own task. You're going to have to go in faith, even when things don't come out the way you intended or the way you wanted, you still have to walk by faith and just trust God that he's up to something. I know it's hard to find a job sometimes, sometimes it's hard to find a spouse, but think about it, it's hard to find the right job and the right spouse, so quit stressing about it. God hears your cries, he's a father who loves you, he's not going to turn his back on you. And we have to have more knowledge of him. We have to increase in our intimacy of God. Because in other words, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond when things go bad. He teaches us through this book, through our walk with him. He'll inspire us. He'll guide us and bless us. And if we cut off all knowledge of him, if we just try to go by our own knowledge and our own flesh, we're going to fail every time. We have to do this by his power. And until we start doing it by his grace, we're going to keep doing it wrong. Right now, there's several fires going on in the church. Because of lack of humility, a lack of grace, a whole lot of judgment. This is what happens when we turn our backs to God. I'm tired of starting fires. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray that your blanket of grace will fall upon all of us as you penetrate the most intimate depths of our souls. I pray that you'll continue to forgive the iniquities of our heart, the transgressions in our spirit, and the sins that just continually trip us up on a regular basis. Father, please forgive us of our sin but also enable us to forgive the sins of others, regardless what those sins look like. We have no right to judge people just because their sin looks different than mine. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. In Christ we pray. Amen. If you would like prayer, I'm more than willing to pray with you.